Hello. Well, my new book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation for Intentional Leadership, with contributions from Bradley Madigan, is out now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere else you buy books. In this book, I address the 12 leadership areas that I have found leaders need to be the most intentional in to be the type of leader followers actually want to follow. From establishing a foundation of leading teams through managing conflict effectively, all the way through leading teams through change, knowing what to do and why to do it can help readers like you become better leaders in the real. 12 Rules for Leaders is a written continuation of the work I've been practically doing, leveraging the leadership training and development products and services of Leadership Toolbox all the way to leading keys. 12 Rules for Leaders represents a distillation of practical lessons I've learned, absorbed, and transmitted from training and developing 15,000 managers and supervisors over the last 10 years. Reading 12 Rules for Leaders and living it is like getting coaching from me directly without having to pay my full coaching rate. Look, this is a book written for all those leaders, some who call themselves managers and supervisors, who believe that their daily leadership decisions don't matter, or that their hard-won leadership positions are too innocuous and meaningless to matter much in the chaotic world of the now. 12 Rules for Leaders is the confirmation you are looking for that you are the leader for exactly the historical moment happening right now. Head on over to leadershiptoolbox.us and scroll down the homepage. Click on the Buy Now button and purchase in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle format on Amazon 12 Rules for Leaders, the Foundation for Intentional Leadership. And that's it for me. Out. Hello. My name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 26, with our returning guest. He's almost a co-host by this point, drinking out of his Starbucks cup, Dorello Nixon. How you doing, Dorello? Great. How are you doing, Hassan? See, he's to the point where he just waves, and it's like two bald black guys, so this is going to be good. <laughs> You're going to like this today. So uh, what we've got today, <clears throat> I think, will rouse the spirits of any independent-minded person or maybe not so independent-minded person or leader in the United States of America and potentially globally for we are going to be reading today from the august founding document upon which the nation-state of the United States rests the Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson and I'm going to put et al. There's a few other guys there who also added some thoughts, but he is credited with doing a lot of the writing. And so from the Declaration of Independence. On July 2nd, 1776, Congress voted to dissolve the connection between this country and Great Britain, declaring the United Colonies of North America to be free and independent states. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which compel them to the separation. 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall see most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, invents a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let the facts be submitted to a candid world. That's the opening of the Declaration of Independence, and uh, it has been said by others, not from the United States, individuals who tend to observe us, you know, the smart people, the wizards of smart from Davros going all the way back to Alexis de Tocqueville, that our culture, governmental operations, and even our approach to Citizenship, as Dorello and I were talking before we began this recording, is driven by mostly what appears to be irrational chaos from the outside. <laughs> uh, most recently, matter of fact, uh, I was thinking about this before I came on the podcast, before I started to think about this uh, today. Uh, the Canadian author, speaker, and podcaster, and noted clinical psychologist Dr. Jordan Peterson uh, said this recently. Uh, he was asked about where the Americans are going to end up. And, of course, he's a Canadian, which if you talk to most Canadians, they don't want the massive, chaotic-driven house party <laughs> that is in their basement <laughs> to come north. But he did say this, and I quote, he said, never bet against the Americans, man. They look like a chaotic, screaming mess down there, but eventually they make the right decision, and then they act. Never, ever bet against the Americans. Most recently, interestingly enough, to maybe put an exclamation point on his own point, Dr. Peterson moved himself and his family from Canada to Tennessee. Hmm. Well, we'll, take, we'll take you, Jordan. <laughs> yes, we will. We'll, we'll be happy to have you. <clears throat> the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution have survived almost 250 years of good times, bad times, and even these mediocre and serious times. And the language of the Declaration, if not the system set up by the Constitution as well, has inspired revolutionaries, 
writers and even leaders. As a matter of fact, the Declaration has been copied more often and is probably the most well-known declarative statement, we hold these truths to be self-evident, ever written in the English language. I mm. take that idea from the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington and Mount Vernon, which we will quote extensively from when we talk about the author, Thomas Jefferson, here in just a moment. Um, but we are going to read today and talk today about the Declaration of Independence and what leaders can learn from its language and even from the process of how it was put together from, you know, our good friend here and barrister of some note, which is why he's here today, Dorolo Nixon. Yeah, that was because I'm bald. <laughs> brings the two poles, north and south, the symmetry. That's right. Yep. Same barber in different cities. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Same cheap barber. Mm. There you go. That's right. Well, you know, it's, I, I, I've moved up from the 25 cent bick in my time. Yes, that man gets around. That's right. So tell me, from this, just the opening of the Declaration of Independence, before I jump into the political life of Thomas Jefferson, and I have a whole thing I want to do, because uh, there's a lot of myths about Jefferson. <clears throat> mm -hmm. There's a lot of information floating around about him. But let's leave him aside for just a second. What do we take from this first piece? What are some thoughts you have from this first piece uh, of the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Declaration of Independence itself? And of course, we are, we are recording this and we are releasing this in July of 2022 when several momentous cases have come out of the Supreme Court of the United States um, mm -hmm. on prayer, uh, the Second Amendment. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we are not a political podcast. We're talking about this in context of leadership. So, um, uh, you know, uh, abortion. Uh, abortion and um, and uh, you know um, pro-life, pro-choice. You know, uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, the, these are important decisions that have come out um, of the court, and the court is a direct uh, function of the Constitution. And the Constitution is a direct function of the Declaration of Independence, and the Declaration of Independence is a direct function of Lockean and Hobbesian and Rousseauian thinking. So, tell us a little bit about the Declaration. Tell us a little bit about the context of it and. What do you think about this as a lawyer looking at this? Um, so it's fascinating as a lawyer, right? Because yeah. it's a legal document. It's meant to do something legally. It's, a meant, right. it's meant to sever a political connection. And reasons weren't just given. The authors stated that they were going to give reasons, and then they gave reasons. Mm -hmm. And so that's, uh, that's good legal drafting. Um, they, 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 among the things that they drill into your head in law school is that, uh, is the principle of legal writing, mm -hmm. uh, framework that you need to tell people what you're going to tell them. And then you tell them, and then you told them what you told them. Mm -hmm. And so that is basically what Jefferson does here. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, in terms of leadership, the, the first, you know, principle that comes to mind, uh, is twofold. One, you need to swing for the fences. Okay. Uh, to borrow from baseball you are not out there to get on base you're out there to hit the ball out of the park and then whoever else is on base will get home and you will too uh but you also at the same time need to do your homework and yeah, so yeah. the writers did their homework and in preparing for this i did my homework because what interests me um in my own history reading um th there are many layers to what um uh, 
happen in history in general and also uh, in history writing, in history pedagogy and how history is taught. Uh, and so one of the things that has fascinated me for almost 20 years is the notion of how someone can view what the Americans did. On the one hand, some people say it's a rebellion. On the other hand, people say, no, they had the right to do this. And so my position on the right or lack thereof to do what they did has changed over time. And one of the fascinating things that has informed that change is discovering new information that relates to not just the events, but the legalities. Okay, just to give a little bit more uh, example so that it's not so abstract. Um, in this document, um, and of course, just as an aside, um, so I read both the draft Jefferson sent to Congress, and then the draft you read is the one that Congress edited. So I can look at side by side both what Jefferson said and what Congress ultimately ended up um, publishing. Okay, mm -hmm. and there are significant uh, differences. The, the most obvious significant difference is that there's a whole paragraph about slavery that was just completely excised, and so um, that's significant. Way, I love yeah. that you brought that up because there's there's there were significant geopolitical and um, historical reasons for excising that entire paragraph. Go ahead. Yeah, which I'm aware, so, I am aware of that, by the way. But there were yeah. significant reasons for that. Yes. So that that part went, and of course that part was written by a man who was a slaveholder on a large scale. Mm -hmm. He didn't just have a few people chained in the closet. And of course, I'm not I'm not trying to be mean to them, to some of whom are my own ancestors. I'm not trying to be mean to them. It's just the scale that he was operating on was not that. Uh, it was large scale. Anyway, um, one of the, the, the distinctions that need to be made between a country, a colony, and a kingdom, between a sovereign meaning a king or a crown, and then sovereignty itself, um, between a sovereign and a legislature and a state. In these discussions that we're going to have and in the discussions that went into the drafting of the Declaration of Independence, these terms didn't all have the same meaning. And one of the one of the fascinating pieces of the analysis is once you learn these distinctions, it can become clearer both what the Americans grievance was and then the British response that ultimately, unfortunately, working together or perhaps fortunately depends on your perspective. Um, ended up leading leading to this document and the severing of ties between peoples who were largely kindred and who largely shared a great deal and a great deal more than uh, than they didn't share. So. So I've heard this comparison that, well, maybe not a comparison, uh, the analogy. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, 250 years later, we are on, we are in the midst of the geopolitical unwinding. I'm convinced we are in the midst of the geopolitical unwinding of globalization. Mm -hmm. And that has multiple factors in it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's multiple different outcomes as a result of that. But one of the potential outcomes mm -hmm. is that England, oddly enough, will come home and uh, 
<laughs> and uh, as uh, the writer Peter Zihan has, has written, um, it'll be kind for America, it'll be kind of like you rebelled as a teenager, you moved out, you grew up, now you're in your middle age, and grandpa wants to move in and live in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> That's Geograph funny. Geographically, our attic would be the North Atlantic. That would be our attic. Um, and the analogy works with Brexit and everything going on currently with, uh, with Great Britain and their inability to kind of figure out Brexit, but they will be forced to make some of those conclusions, uh, or forced to come to some of those conclusions because of the nature of France reasserting itself on the continent, which will happen in light of, which is already happening actually, in light of the EU being rejiggered for a whole variety of reasons to really serve the continentals and not serve the English. But I sense the English working class already suspected of this long before the French even did, um, or, or their own elites. Um, Certainly before said, their own elites, yeah. Yeah. With yeah. that being said, um, the Declaration of Independence comes within a context, right? And so the context of the time is um, Americans had been on, well, not Americans, English-speaking peoples, let's frame it that way, had been on the continent of North America for at least a hundred and... And close to 120 years um, in one form or another um, by the time this really began to really kick in. Um, mm -hmm. If you read the historian Paul Johnson, um, mm -hmm. Americans were taller, uh, they were heavier, they were um, they, they uh, ate better food. Mm -hmm. um, Which is why they were taller and heavier. They had more kids um, than, uh, than the English did. Um, they also had the advantage of geography, where mm -hmm. they weren't quite sure. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, uh, his greatest probably achievement other than the Declaration of Independence was signing on to the Louisiana Purchase at, what was it, 20 cents an acre, and literally fumbling around looking for the quill saying, where do I sign for this? Really, like, why did you just say this yesterday? Yes, we will take it. Um, you didn't even have to think about that, right? And doubled the size of the United States literally with a pen stroke, right? Um, and again, mightier than the sword. Well, and putting this in the context of geopolitics as well, you know, helping Napoleon, which, by the way, Thomas Jefferson was in favor of the French Revolution and believed we should be war in that direction. We're going to read the Federalist Papers also here with Dorolo coming up this month. There's going to be a lot of Dorolo on the podcast this month, folks, so just settle back and get some coffee. Um, but we're going to read the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers. And Hamilton, um, Madison, and Jay, the writers of the Federalist Papers, were opposed by Jefferson. As a matter of fact, we'll read about this in his biography in just a second. He thought they were basically scurrilous fools, in essence. I mean, if you think that the political rhetoric going on now in the United States is a problem, it was nothing. It's, we're very polite, actually, right now in comparison to what came before. So I'm building all of this in to say that I guess if you're going to go for it as a leader, you might as well, like you said, swing for the fences. Yes. Um, you might as well define the terms. But then you have to have clear writing. Mm -hmm. You do have to communicate it clear. Yeah. And that is something that's amazing about both this document and the U.S. Constitution, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. In a recent Supreme Court ruling, it is noted that the document is designed for average people to read and average people to understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is funny. And not to find penumbrances of other things in the document. Yes, okay. it's the opposite of the IRS code. 
that is literally designed <laughs> to create an entire industry called accountants. Right. Um, and it does. It you does. Know, like, don't try to make sense of, you know, 2,000, however many pages. Don't. 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 Right. My legal advice, my legal advice as a New York licensed attorney is don't <laughs> hire an accountant. Don't. Just hire an accountant. And that advice comes to you with the stamp of approval from HSCT Publishing. And <laughs> All free of free charge. <laughs> free <laughs> of charge. Free legal advice. Normally to be suspected, but no. <laughs> Basically... <laughs> You know, the leadership principle of knowing when to defer to wiser heads. Yeah. This is an area of specialization and you're not going to have it. Most people won't. And if you insist on trying to get it or insist on that you have it, as long as comma CPA is found after your last name, I'm okay. You probably do, but everybody else? Nope. Nope. N-O-P-E, period. Well, even some of those comma CPAs you got to watch out for. <clears throat> some celebrities have found that out. Wow, recent to past. Anyway, um, so what do we, I guess my other question before I jump into Thomas Jefferson here, um, I said in the, in the opening there that never been against America. And you read the Declaration of Independence and you realize that these guys are throwing down a gauntlet early. Mm-hmm. They're saying something revolutionary, not in the way that Rousseau or his boys were in France at the time, and not in the way that the British would much later with the, well, not much later, but a little bit later with the ending of the transatlantic slave trade, over which King George III saw, which we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, which led to the rise of the Industrial Revolution, which was the British the British Revolution, in essence, mm-hmm. that occurred in the... Um, <clears throat> in the uh, 19th century, they're laying down a different kind of gauntlet here. What kind of gauntlet were the Americans laying down by, in essence, composing this declaration and then shipping it around and having everybody look at it? What were they daring the English to do, really? Come and take it. (laughs) Malone LaBay, right? Come and take it. Right. Yep. Hey, we're free. You can come and try to take it away, you know, but it's fascinating because back to one of my earlier points. So you're correct. And it is a challenge to the British, but most specifically it is, it was a challenge to parliament and his majesty's government in parliament to do what English law did not allow them to do and that they claimed a pretension to be able to do, namely to tax the American colonists. And it took me decades to figure that out um, because it just seems axiomatic. Oh, well, they founded the, they, Mm -hmm. I mean, who in parliament immigrated, right? Right. They founded the colonies, right? Right. They're the government of the country. So, of course, they can say, well, you have to pay these taxes. And then you start, you know, learning in the history reading. And then, of course, in in legal studies that, oh, okay, that's not really how it worked. That at a minimum since 1215, when a bunch of rebellious barons, go figure, forced King John to give his assent to Magna Carta. I was going to mention the Magna Carta here. Yeah. (laughs) 
And here, if I copy in here, I have Sources of English Constitutional History, Volume 1, Revised Edition. Don't remember when it was published, but the main thing is in Magna Carta. A couple of things I want to bring up. One, uh, King John gave his royal assent to a document that limited his ability to force his people, regardless of where they were denom regardless of where they were living, but to force his people um, to pay taxes without their consent. And one of the disturbing things when you first hear it is if you Google it or you go to England or wherever, um, there are very few clauses in Magna Carta that are still valid in terms of the law and in terms of the British constitution today. That normally sounds disturbing. And then when you start doing the digging, you find out, oh, well, maybe it's because um, our life ways have grown and changed. So very many of the provisions aren't relevant. Right, okay. And so, for example, in the West, I believe it is rare to come across examples of women giving dowries when they marry. So there are provisions in there that talk about how her dowry is supposed to be restored. That's just generally not relevant today. There's a principle in there that women have property rights and that women have property rights that need to be vindicated quickly upon the death, a married woman upon the death of her husband. There's an actual principle in there, uh, which in my opinion is much better vindicated today than it was then. But that shows you that you know these ideas were there. But one of the provisions that's still valid is number 14. And that's the one, clause 14, that reads this way, quote, and in order to have the common council of the kingdom for assessing aid, you got to love politicians, right? You're talking about taxes. Why don't you say levying a tax? No, no, no. Assessing aid. Oh, you mean forcing us to pay taxes. Assessing aid other than in the three cases aforesaid, which I won't mention, or for assessing scutage. We will cause the archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, and greater barons to be summoned by our letters individually. And besides, we will have cause to be summoned in general through our sheriffs and bailiffs, all those who hold of us in chief for a certain day, namely at the end of 40 days at least, and to a certain place. And in all such letters of summons, we will state the cause of the summons. And when the summons has thus been made, the business assigned for the day shall proceed according to the counsel of those who are present, although all those summoned may not come. It actually sounds like Robert's Rules of Order. Oh, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you, you, like, you, know, yeah. you have notice. Okay. Notice is one of the most important due process uh, related rights. Okay. Oh, well, we're going to make this decision. Notice individual as you notice king john agreed to individual notice okay a certain amount of days at least 40 then a certain place not we're meeting in edinburgh and it's really in london no no no, no. a certain place and this document actually proceed preceded by about 50 years the regular holding of parliament on the island of great britain mm -hmm. that started in about 1265 and in 1215 is when Magna Carta was signed. So that that's one of the uh, the rights that Englishmen had and that the majority of Americans had in a very narrow way of looking at it. And that was actually foreseeable at the time, okay? Because in the very first clause... Yes, which we'll get to in I'm just a second. I'm done with Magna Carta. In the we'll, very, we'll get, very first clause, go ahead, yeah. <laughs> We have also granted to all free men mm -hmm. 
pause there. We have also granted to all free men of our kingdom. Okay, so this is 1215. 1215, okay. So that, uh, I believe, ought to include parts of France, right? Uh, Yes, in 1215. And Normandy. Normandy, yeah. In the 13th century. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Still part of the kingdom of the British crown. But anyway, sorry, the English crown. But anyway, um, for us and our heirs forever. Goes right down to Her Majesty today, right? Queen Elizabeth II, an heir of King John. All the liberties here, un- here in underwritten to be had and held by them and their heirs of us and our heirs. So this is all legal language, and it's legal language that is in um, you learn about in trusts and estates. Okay. This is almost like a will. So this is not just a standard document, okay? Hmm. But it's meant to be binding forever and binding on the successors, not only of the sovereign, but of the people of the sovereign's kingdom. So fast forward to 1760 or 1761, James Otis, okay? An American lawyer. Anyway, they understood that they had rights just by being Englishmen. And that included not being able to be taxed by parliament because they didn't elect anyone to go to parliament. They're not summoned, their representatives aren't summoned to parliament. Parliament had no authority to tax them. And I'm sure you're gonna get to it, but the real crisis, and you know, it's fascinating when, when did you realize, Hassan, that, that when people talk about a crisis, they're usually talking about something that is probably going on for at least a decade or perhaps longer? Oh, yeah. I mean, you realize that. Good Lord. I mean, gosh. I mean, when you first start studying history really closely. like you, you So one of the things that, and I want to talk about hierarchies and documents because there's a psychological thing going on here too, which is interesting for leaders to, to note. Um, and it's a nested psychological thing. Um, but the big thing here initially is putting the sovereign in his place and saying that the sovereign is not bigger than a piece of paper, which is interesting because at the base of Western culture, uh, and I'm not the first person to point this out, but at the basement of Western culture, one of the the major bricks in the basement of Western culture is the Bible, which is in essence a collection of books. And in that collection of books, the it is indicated it is indicated that the sovereign is not higher than the highest thing in that book, which is God. <laughs> so the sovereign's not higher than God. The, 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 the sovereign's not higher than God. The sovereign's not even higher than a book that represents God. And the sovereign is not higher than a piece of paper that makes reference to a book that references and, re- and, uh, and recognizes the ultimate sovereign uh, nature of a God, or not of a God, of God. Okay. That's a hierarchical ladder there. And I've been thinking a lot lately about Caesar, (laughs) Uh, just sort of in general, not Julius Caesar necessarily, although go back and listen to the podcast where Dorolo and I talk about Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. Great podcast, two hour long conversation uh, about that. But, um, but the, the nature of sort of where, where is, 
where does Caesar really belong, right? And occasionally Caesar gets out of control <laughs> and Caesar needs to be checked. And this document checks Caesar, but you're but going back to this idea of it taking at least 10 years for a crisis to develop. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it takes a generation for people to pay attention because <laughs> people are so separated from the re... People are separated from the consequences of their actions by time. Time defeats human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And because we are temporary and our perspective is narrow, extremely narrow, the temporality of our, of our actions and the nature of consequences over the course of time is inherently unclear to us. And so these books, these documents exist to provide a template because what they say to us is they say, there might be something that someone who came before you might know better than you. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to try to give you some wisdom. And that's why we have this book. That's why we have this podcast. We're going to try to give you some wisdom so that you don't have to go through all that garbage. You don't have, to have a crisis every 10 years, every right. single time. And so, yes, this, I mean, the Declaration of Independence didn't just pop up. Like, there were things that were going on fundamentally in the world that these men... And yes, they were educated men. Sorry, ladies. These educated men did know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And there were moral things, you talk about slavery, that they were struggling with mm -hmm. in light of the events that were going on. And I believe fundamentally with the Declaration and then later on with the Constitution, they were trying to create something that would resist the vicissitudes of crisis. And that's it what really last the ages. Yes, that's really hard to do. the ages, yeah. Yeah, and to make it a piece of paper—that's a bold assertion. And it's more—I right. I, I think at the—I do. I think at the—and I live, you know, I live in Texas, so like there's there's a place here called the or there's a there's a society here called the Come and Take It Society, <laughs> and their 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 logo is an old school old school cannon. <laughs> now, now in Texas, because we have gun culture. Uh, it, that, that's basically their, their focus, right? Um, but the, the, the underlying theme, the underlying idea is, yes, come and, come and get some if you're going to come get some. Let's get after it. But it's also the underlying, the underlying thing underneath there is we win just by entering the field. We win just by having the guts to step onto the field. And that's something that's fundamentally American, and I think that's why you don't bet against the Americans. They have the guts to step mm -hmm. onto the field. Don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Japanese general, I think it was uh, me, uh, Yamamoto, I think it mm -hmm. was, uh, tried, was it Yamamoto? Might have been. Or somebody in the Japanese, um, the Japanese high command, uh, just before the launch of Pearl Harbor, was just like, no, leave the Americans alone. Just... There's got to be a way we can do this without riling them up. Because <laughs> if we rile them up, I'll even go. I'll even go to the, the. I'll even go to Hitler. I mean, Hitler fundamentally believed that if they could crush the English, if the Germans could crush the English and crush the Russians, the Americans would just sue for peace. Just done. Just leave them out. Or uh, Osama bin Laden. The reason that 9/11 occurred was because Osama bin Laden, and he said it out of his own mouth. Thought we were a weak horse. Like you're done. You're dead. Mm -hmm. You're finished. We can take you. We can punch you in the eye one time and you will collapse because you're decadent. Because all we see is your Hollywood culture. Mm -hmm. I think people confuse the culture 
with the decoration. They confused the culture with the piece of paper. And these mm-hmm. men never did that. They never mm-hmm. did that. They separated those two things. And that's what makes this sucker timeless. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's um, for the people betting against our nation. What I bet. They always have been. They're always oh, yes. Been. No, no doubt. It's just, I don't know how many of them are wise at betting. Um, and I, I mean, we don't gamble. It's not what we believe, but yeah. there's a, there's a principle in gambling that the house always wins. Right. In the end, if you gamble long enough, you will lose to the house. That's how the system is set up. And so in my view, again, not as a gambler, the sophisticated ones need to know how to have, how to enter and they need an exit strategy. That's right. Because the only way you're going to beat the house is if you end before the end, because the house is going to win. And so, um, in my view, that's part of how successful gambling works. And again, I don't do it. I don't condone it. It's just, it, I mean, people are free to, but you know, you could also just hand me money. Like you're free to just do what you want. With it. Send all your money to DeRolo Nixon. For <laughs> free, right. Gifts. Not tax deductible. No. Anyway, um, <laughs> Getting back to that. <laughs> I think the people betting against our nation reckon in this way. Okay. So they're young. They have a lot of power. They have a lot of money. But they're young. They have not been around for thousands of years like some nations. Like the Egyptian nation has been around for thousands of years. The Chinese nation has been around for thousands of years. Um, each of those places has successor states as you go backwards, preceding states that literally go for millennia, and we don't. So um, there are just certain considerations when you can look thousands of years back and thus thousands of years ahead or project thousands of years ahead. You can, you can look at trends in a different way. Um, and so um, I, I suspect that they're – betting on um, our unwillingness to live peacefully beside each other, holding different values <laughs> and <laughs> wanting different things and not tearing ourselves apart. Yeah. Uh, I don't bet on us being invaded successfully. I don't, not, not at present. I don't expect that to happen. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, but I think it's someone betting wisely against our, our nation would know not to do that. Uh, for example, the two the, the examples you just brought up, you know, from the, the Third Reich and from, you know, the, the Imperial Japanese High Command, leave them alone. Right. But somebody with malicious intent could say, just, just wait, just leave them alone. <laughs> They're going to tear each other apart. They're armed to the teeth. They're going to tear each other apart. And then we can come in and we can get the pickings. And so my concern for both the near and the far future is, um, you know, how do, how do we foster the type of culture and the type of society that helps people live side by side and work side by side with people with whom you don't agree uh, and do that peacefully? Because uh, if that's not done, eventually, you know, there's going to be enough fuel for the fire. It's just going to be the right kind of spark. And then, you know, here we are. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 painful, you know. Um, it's very painful. Now, one of the one of the um, historians I read, his name is Colin Woodard, and he's written, um, I think, very insightfully and very well about how there have been multiple 
that at the time of the founding in 1776, there were actually multiple American nations and not this, you know, oh, 13 colonies, 13 nations. No, 13 colonies, 13 states, but not 13 nations. And so in his view, there's about four. There's uh, a man with a French name who thought they're either nine or 13. He's written a book that I still haven't been able to get a hold of cheaply. Um, I saw a copy for like 80 bucks or something crazy on Amazon. I was going to pay it. But um, there's something to this notion of founding nations within, you know, what became the United States of America that I think is highly relevant. And it's highly relevant uh, in terms of the Declaration of Independence, because as we touched on, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what do those words mean? Within, according to Woodard, these four founding cultures, uh, now his is broader, I'm sorry. Within, um, what's his name? David Hackett Fisher um, is another historian. Uh, he wrote a book called Albion Seed that Woodard drew on. Anyway, in Albion Seed, there were four founding British, in quotation mark, cultures in what became the United States of America. They had four different ideas about liberty. Okay. New England's idea about liberty was not the same as the Northern Mid-Atlantic's idea about liberty. It was not the same as the Tidewater that's the Southern elite's idea of liberty, which was not the same idea as Andrew Jackson's backcountry idea of liberty. I've Different heard of this theory. Liberty. Uh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard of this theory right. before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. I've heard of this. Yes. And to me, that goes, that's like one poll. And on the other poll, if you read the parliamentary debates and in some correspondence of British parliamentarians in the 1760s and the 1770s, they didn't just appreciate the irony of a bunch of slaveholding Southerners <laughs> screaming about liberty. They spoke about it. Right. They debated about it. And so they could see you have a problem because you're claiming we're denying your liberty that you're denying to Negroes. Right. So what is the deal? You know? Right. And so what's cool about that, that's the other end of the poll for me. These yeah. unifying notions that say, yeah, you may have four ideas, but at heart, I think we can collapse some of these walls and get to some kernel of an idea of what liberty actually is. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we, we fought a war with that, you know, and that produced a, quote, new birth of freedom, close quote, from somebody who referred to this document the declaration of independence in that speech that's right. because it's that important so yes well speaking of the document let's uh let's look a little bit let's turn a little bit of a corner here and let's look a little bit at the political life of the writer of the declaration of independence or at least the guy who has his name slapped all over it yep. thomas jefferson no, a lot no, has been no. said about thomas jefferson a lot <laughs> has been said about Thomas Jefferson, although interestingly enough, well, I'll point out something after I read this. So let me read from Mary Stockwell, Dr. Mary Stockwell, from the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon, uh, the source document uh, where we got both uh, our version of the Declaration of Independence from. And there's several other versions, by the way, I would encourage you to visit their website. Great website, uh, Mount Vernon. Uh, the Mount Vernon, uh, the Mount Vernon Library there has all of George Washington's papers, um, and that is also from where we pulled the Thanksgiving Day Proclamation that we run on the podcast every Thanksgiving Day, from of course the pen of George Washington. So, and I quote extensively from Doctor Mary Stockwell. 
Martha Washington often recalled the two saddest days in her life. The first was December 14th, 1799, when her husband died. The second was in January 1801, when Thomas Jefferson visited Mount Vernon. As a close friend explained, quote, she assured a party of gentlemen, of which I was one, that next to the loss of her husband, Jefferson's visit was, quote, the most painful occurrence of her life, unquote. She had come to dislike Jefferson for his frequent attacks on President George Washington as a monarchist bent on destroying the rule of the people and a senile follower of the policies of your friend and mine, Alexander Hamilton. Jefferson even refused to attend memorial services for the president, saying in private that the quote-unquote Republican spirit in the nation might revive now that Washington was dead and the Federalists could no longer hide behind his heroic image. Such animosity had not always existed between the two men. Instead, they were once friends with much in common. Born in 1743, Jefferson, like Washington, was a tall redhead. No not say anything on that, from the middling planter class. After attending William and Mary, studying law, look at that, he served in the House of Burgesses. He too raised his status by marrying a wealthy widow, Martha Wales Skelton. By the way, pause here, uh, leaders marry well. Unpause. Jefferson considered himself a farmer and spent his life improving his plantations, especially Monticello, just as Washington cared for Mount Vernon. But it was his devotion to the cause of the American Revolution that Jefferson most resembled Washington. As a member of the Continental Congress, Jefferson was recognized for his brilliant writing, expressed most clearly in the Declaration of Independence. He later served in Virginia's assembly, where he ended primogeniture, entail, and established religion, and then later became governor. Back in the Confederation Congress, he helped draft legislation that opened the West for settlement. In 1784, he was appointed ambassador to France, which a guy like that wanted to go to France. He, he longed for it. He lusted for it. He needed to go in his heart. Jefferson returned to the United States in November 1789 to serve as Washington's Secretary of State. His troubles with the Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, began almost immediately pause once more. Literally from the jump, these guys were at each other's throats. Like, literally from the jump. They could not, as my grandmother would say, tolerate the cut of each other's jib. Uh, back <laughs> to Dr. Mary Stockwell. He questioned Hamilton's plan for funding and, and considered the Bank of the United States unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Interesting. As with the French Revolution... As the French Revolution grew more violent, Jefferson continued to support an alliance with France against Hamilton, who favored closer ties with Great Britain. He even came to believe that Hamilton and his Federalists were bent on restoring a monarchy in the United States and that Washington had fallen completely under their spell. In 1793, Jefferson resigned from Washington's cabinet. Soon the leader of the Democratic-Republican Party, he became vice president in 1796 and president in 1801. In his inaugural address, he called Washington, quote, our first and greatest revolutionary character whose preeminent services has entitled him to first place in his country's love, unquote. Back at Mount Vernon, Martha Washington dismissed Jefferson's sarcastic remarks, claiming his election was the greatest misfortune our nation has ever experienced, proving that political hyperbole Dr. Stockwell did not write this in say son. Proving that political hyperbole is nothing new to 2022. Uh, Jefferson served for two terms, back to Mary Stockwell, uh, served for two terms with the 1803 Louisiana Purchase being his greatest accomplishment, as we already mentioned, before retiring to Virginia where he died in 1826. 
Let's like read what Jefferson wrote there before we jog off to him a little bit. Back to the Declaration of Independence. So the he, they're going to start listing now all the things that uh, this he that they are declaring against has done after that rousing opening. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. By the way, pause. This is exactly a reference to the Magna Carta. Unpause. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raised, raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. If that ain't a list of grievances, thought up by a guy who was more comfortable with Frenchmen <laughs> than he was maybe with his own people. Or would be, right? He would be more Would be. Um, so sh let me, I'm going to ask a question here. Should you ever piss off a ginger? <laughs> when he writes like this? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, clearly Jefferson... And, and, you know, it wasn't just him alone. I mean, there were probably about anywhere between 12, 10 to 12 contributors um, to this document. Uh, Benjamin Franklin had a hand in it. Um, and uh, John and, uh, Adams. John Adams, you know. Mm -hmm. um, Hamilton didn't only because he was a late he was late to the game on independence. He didn't really see the speaking of playing poker. He didn't see the he didn't see where the bet was going. Um, and I think Hamilton was kind of kind of really focused on that. By the way, this is not the Hamilton... Well, no, I'm just going to leave that aside for just a second. Uh, Jefferson didn't get any fancy didn't get any fancy musicals about him. Um, this not is yet. some interesting... <laughs> not, not yet, anyway. 
get to documentaries and biopics and DNA research and other things that are actually completely fascinating. But yeah, right. but no music, but no, no sexy musical, no, no sexy musicals for Thomas Jefferson, which I, I, I don't know how he would feel about that. I think actually, I think he would probably be like, you know what that figures <laughs> <laughs> y'all got suckered by Hamilton again. He would be furious. He would be furious. Hamilton's popularity. He would be. He would be. He would be absolutely undone. And then he'd also be irritable that everybody was like digging into him, digging into him. He was like, I don't, I don't have time for this. Stop it. <laughs> what is this Twitter thing of which you speak? <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, That's anyway. awesome. Uh, <laughs> this is a list of grievances that is that is that is. It, it goes back to the Magna Carta for sure. Like there's mm-hmm. there's clear legal precedent for each one of these grievances and they are specifically laid out mm-hmm. let me ask you a challenge question is this enough to overthrow a government is this enough to say we must dissolve these bonds because there's nothing in here about like he's taking us away and cutting our heads off so like isn't there a negotiation couldn't a deal have been done with these guys Potentially. I mean, I think I think um, there's a couple of things to mention. So the paragraph in which you ended is a reference to Parliament. OK, mm-hmm. because when he's talking about a jurisdiction foreign to our constitutions and unacknowledged by our laws, it is a highly specific reference to how the individual colonies were founded, their royal charters. Which, did, which were legal documents that did not subject them to parliamentary jurisdiction. So they're claiming, and some of it is a little bit of, of, of sleight of hand as it were, but they're basically saying, we have this connection to the crown. We do not have a connection to parliament other than what parliament has the pretension to claim. And there's a specific act, I believe it was from 1766, called the Declaration Act, okay, in which Parliament declared it had the right to legislate over the American colonies, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, if you go back to the very, the second paragraph of this document, the one that begins, when in the course of human events, the thing that got my attention is the the verb to assume. Mm -hmm. And... There's a way of interpreting that to mean, oh, you know, so we're just going to um, take up that type of assumption. I mean the assumption the way we use it today, to assume. It's a pretension, okay? Right. Sovereignty is an assumption, not a certainty. It's an assumption. So. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume he's talking about assuming powers. It's a risk. It's a throw of the dice. It's an assumption. And if you look at how he speaks of, for example, in this paragraph, quote, it's how many paragraphs later? One, two, three, four paragraphs later. The right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. That is in contrast to the assumption, okay? He does not speak of sovereignty the way he speaks of that right of representation. 
the cardinal right in their minds was the right of representation. Of representation. Which gets of back to the Indian. In a legislature, in a legislature which right. alone had the right to tax. Taxation so, without representation is tyranny. This is what. So, okay. Calling. So, wait a minute. So, wait a minute. This is. So, I'm going to ask the question that yeah. an, any eighth grader worth their salt right now <laughs> would ask. <laughs> so, Professor DiRolo, Professor DiRolo, Teacher DiRolo, uh, why didn't King George just give him a parliament? Now, that's a very good question. And so. There's a few things to look at before answering it. Partly to give just me time ship to a couple, Just ship a few guys over and give them a parliament. Partly, partly to give me time to think. Yeah, yeah. What I learned recently is that the Declaration Act had a precedent. And the precedent was an act that related to Ireland, which at the time was just a dominion, like America was a dominion. <laughs> the Irish? Ireland also had a parliament that was separate from the parliament that sat in Westminster, which is right. in Great Britain, in London, okay? Ireland had its own parliament at the time, okay? Um, what you're basically asking is, why don't you treat the Americans the way you treated the Irish and just right. give them their own parliament? Yeah. It's a very, very good question. Solves all um, the problems. I mean, hell, many hell's of hell's, you don't have to run them down like you did the Scots. That's <laughs> just correct. Just give them their own parliament. Were, well, staying with Ireland itself. Um, that wasn't sufficient to stop the agitation. And one of the main reasons was that the bulk of the people in Ireland, and I say this as, you know, as a black and Irish American, but the bulk of the people on that island were Catholic. And there were penal laws in place that prevented their enfranchisement and not just the vote, but literally in social discourse and normal social life, okay? They were made enemies in their own country. And so the reason that injustice was the reason that this agitation, literally, even up till today, right? There's right, still right. a situation there today, but the primary, um, in my view, um, one of the primary injustices was the sectarian divide and completely disenfranchising one whole uh, religion and enfranchising another. But anyway, in America, which gets to the Constitution of Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor denying the free expression thereof. Ding, 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 ding. Even if that, even if that, even if that recognition by the legislature or by the Congress, such as that were, is of a religion which claims to not be a religion, but has all of these psychological, moral, and even emotional aspects of religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about more with the Constitution. <laughs> you can leave that aside for just a minute. So the American colonists were Englishmen, as it were. Now there there were countless Scots, Irishmen, uh, Germans, Dutch, Swedes, um, a million Africans, <laughs> and then beyond the frontiers of the nation. You can't see me doing air quotes because it's not. Uh, that's not audibly, that's the, that's not audibly recordable, but anyway, so I have to state them. So you can't see me doing air quotes. So quote, beyond the frontiers of the nation, close quote, you then had, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of native Americans, of American aboriginals, of tribes with their own names and their own histories doing their own thing mm -hmm. on land they had been on for 
some of them for millennia. But anyway, yeah, uh, millennia. Yeah. Um, Anyway, um, the viewpoint was very different. Okay, Uh, America was not a country that had been militarily conquered um, by an English army. Okay, Uh, it had been settled voluntarily, uh, privately funded in several waves, and it was full of, quote, Englishmen, close quote, who had rights, rights that I referred to and read to from Magna Carta. And there were certain things that the sovereign, King George III, couldn't do. Um, And so uh, do I think it would have solved the problem? I don't know, because at the end of the day, what was the actual problem that needed to be solved? Um, Now, Edmund Burke, that uh, imminent, 18th century intellectual, that uh, brilliant light in the Georgian firmament, okay, Um, and that, uh, an Irish Briton, I don't know how else to describe him, but anyway, um, he he talked about some of these issues, and one of the things that he argued in Parliament between 1766 and 1774 um, was the notion that if you just leave the Americans alone and don't tax them. They're not going to continue this rebellious agitation. And he was able to demonstrate in 1774, he was able to demonstrate that when we repealed the Stamp Act in 1766, and he he said this as a member of parliament. So when we, parliament, repealed the Stamp Act in 1766, the agitation stopped. But they just couldn't leave, leave well enough alone, you know. And so for those of you looking for the hand of God in history, why couldn't Parliament just leave them alone? Why did Parliament insist on trying to tax the Americans without enfranchising the Americans at the same time? I don't know. I don't know. But we have a country in part because they just couldn't leave it alone. They just had to keep poking so I think and it finally I, got to the Americans. I think I have an idea of why they couldn't leave it well enough alone. And I don't think it just had to do with Parliament. I think if it was just Parliament alone, a deal could have been done. I think Burke would have done a deal. Burke would have done a deal with the Americans. It would have been fine. Um, he could have led on that. <clears throat> I think there's another player in here we have to consider. Mm-hmm. And that is the the he in question <laughs> mm-hmm. in the Declaration of Independence. And that is the King of England at the time, King George the third now no matter what the popular musical hamilton which we've already mentioned a couple times may tell you about king george the third and it is interesting that jefferson doesn't get a musical anyway um george the third wasn't a simpering prancing coward he wasn't that guy he wasn't even a simpering prancing tyrant and that's one of the worst things about the hamilton musical is they kind of reduce king george the third to this like tyrannical 12 year old or tyrannical two-year-old and that's not what that guy was um he was a monarch and when you go and you read if you want to go read read about king george the third on wikipedia you can but um dude was a dude Dude or andrew roberts book uh, the british historian andrew roberts just came out with a book on george the third i believe last year uh dude was a stud um he was a, I won't say he was a man's man, but he for sure knew what he was. He was a sovereign with all that, that entailed. 
Um, and, and I know that Americans struggle with this idea because we just do. That's just the nature of, well, it's the nature of the outgrowth of the Declaration of Independence. Um, our, our, our natural posture, which is why we struggle with elites in our country, our natural posture is to look for their feet of clay and then hammer on it mercilessly until they fall over. Because mm-hmm. they will. Because they will. <laughs> they will. You're they referring to equality. It is in the yes. water we drink and the air we breathe. The air we breathe. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going even further than that. I think we live in a, our idol is now egalitarianism. I, I mm. used to think the idol is freedom, but I, I think the idol is, we've idolized egalitarianism, which is always a bad idea. Um, the idol part, not the egalitarianism part. Um, no, uh, uh, I think we, well, when you look at King George III, he oversaw the defeat of wars um, and, and uh, oversaw the end of the wars in Europe um, against Napoleon. And Napoleon was no, no slouch um, at the time. Um, at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, he oversaw that. Um, he also, interestingly enough, in 1807, um, oh, which you talk about slavery being brought up as the hypocritical sort of needle in the haystack, or maybe not needle in the haystack, uh, chink in the armor of Americans' conception of liberty. Um, In 1807, King George oversaw the banning of the transatlantic slave trade um, Mm -hmm. with the British Empire. Um, He was proud and monarchical, and from near everything I can read, he was incredibly arrogant. And well, he was a king. And he was a king. And, <laughs> you know, he was a king. <laughs> he was a king. And so, and, but he fundamentally understood how to hold power mm-hmm. um, in a world driven by monarchy. And again, that's a world we do not understand because mm-hmm. we in the in the 2022 live in a post 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 monarchical world where the only monarchies we see are either that lovely old lady in England. Or someone who's getting overthrown by a military junta in some country that we've never heard of. I'm thinking of Malaysia right now, where <laughs> their queen, I believe, if I remember correctly, might be their prime minister, but I, I, it's someone in, in their in their governmental system is now under house arrest <laughs> and has been moved to a prison. And Lovely. Off, yeah, and they've been cutting off the internet. Uh, clear information about what's going on this is the internet oh oh god but this is what we live in right this is what we live in now and so we understand dictatorships we don't understand monarchies we don't understand monarchies and so monarchies the 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 he that's referred to in here and the level of vituperation against the he that is in each one of these boom 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 listed complaints that are as derolo pointed out legally clearly written out here and are explained we don't understand the emotion that was behind these we don't understand the level of people feeling like this was the game um and they had to win it and this and they had to set the rules otherwise this big scary dude was going to come over and and bother them um yes and send armies to do so send armies to do so and And they already had some there correct and and fundamentally I, i one of the things i recognize about king george the third is that fundamentally he was pragmatic. Um, and, and you see that in evidence in a quote, which I thought was interesting, that he told John Adams, um, the newly appointed American minister to London in 1785, he said, and I quote, I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, 
I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. Mm. Close quote. Mm. You don't uh, get there without being pragmatic. Or being humbled, but yes. Um, or that. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I agree that he was pragmatic. I mean, I, don't, I know he wasn't an idiot. Um, I have a I have a biography. Um, you can you can be pragmatic and be arrogant. Like you can you can, those two things can do do sometimes go to go hand in hand. It can, but something's got to make the arrogance like it's got to be deflated a bit. I think right. before the arrogant leader is willing to step down. So it's interesting that for as an aside, this being a podcast about leadership, it's interesting that we're talking about the, these aspects of leadership. Uh, I hadn't foreseen this. I think this is great. So, um, yes, I do think that deflating needs to happen before certain um, leadership can actually take effect. Um, for whatever reason, the one that comes to mind is uh, François Premier, the Francis I, François Premier of, of, of France, évidemment. Uh, he uh, was young, virile with his army, super excited, fighting in Italy, got captured, was made prisoner for some amount of time, had to be ransomed out of jail, okay? The real accomplishments of that man were all after that. They were all after that, other than the fact that he came to the throne. So he was able to defeat, I think the guy was his uncle or second cousin or whatever, um, Louis the 11th, okay, who okay, tried okay. to get a young girl pregnant whom he married one of these things to try to forestall the the arrival of Francois, right, okay, that didn't work. So, um, Francois is in there. The real impact he had on France, uh, and it was lasting, uh, was after those, that <laughs> horrendous experience, okay, and humiliation, okay, and so I'm wondering if George III's um, comments, even that early in 1785, because I mean, the Treaty of Paris oh, yeah. was signed in you know, 1783. So right. this is two years later. Uh, and admittedly to an ambassador, right? And so to an official representative. So how much of this was just diplomatic language? I don't know. I know they used those things and still use that, that type of discourse, right? Um, even down to you oh, know, yeah. however many Russian ambassadors currently being called into you know chambers by the president of Lithuania. That was the last one I heard about. That was last week, I believe. Anyway, um, and so I'm wondering. Um, let, let me assume for the sake of the argument that he meant what he said. Sure. Uh, you know, I think that may actually reflect you know some a little bit of humility that he gained. You know, um, I mean. He was a very popular sovereign, a very popular sovereign. He had many virtues as a private citizen, but he wasn't even a citizen, let alone a private individual. Um, he's actually responsible, in my view, in, in a very oblique way. He is highly responsible for the lady referred to, who currently sits on the throne on the other side of the Atlantic, um, being there namely the use of family and popularity to reinforce british monarchical power he he's the one who started that one wife no mistresses 16 kids oh, he yeah. started that 
<laughs> he started that, you know, the whole, the, the firm with the, we are, oh, yeah. that whole key, George III started that. And so it's ironic in my mind, it's ironic and painfully, but I guess it depends on perspective. I guess I say it painfully because I, I don't like seeing uh, effective leaders fall. I don't like seeing them stumble. I don't like seeing them poorly served. And that was also something that he was. But as you point out, um, he was very much in control and very much wielded power in ways that we don't understand unless we look at a monarchy as a dignified dictatorship where there was some kind of connection with the people that went in the mystical department or whatever. Right. You know? That's that's the best way I've heard the monarchy described. It's it's so in people who people in, in critics of the United States who look at our country, they do not understand how the president of the country is also the leader of the party and is also the leader of the government. That's ridiculous to them because in a monarchical system the prime minister is head of the government, may not necessarily be head of the party. Those two things are mutually exclusive. Then you have a head of a party in a political system who may not be, who may or may not be the prime minister. Again, mutually exclusive. And then you have the nature of power and character in the position of sovereign of the nation state embodied in a separate person over there. Because their big, piece, their big piece of critical feedback to the American system is, it is too much for one person to carry. And actually, I agree, that's why it's only a four-year term. <laughs> that's number one. Number two, that's why you only get two bites at the apple, Pache Richard Nixon. You only get two bites at the apple. That's number two. And number three, that's why we only have two parties in this in this country and not a parliament. Many people are frustrated, particularly many people now are frustrated with the two-party system. They think that it's a bunch of nonsense and we should move it's towards. It's in America's DNA. It's completely right, right. And uh, right, right, right. And I'm 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 not going to get. And then we should have third parties and fourth parties and all this. Other kind of it, well, they're free to try, and it's worked. <laughs> it's just all they do is supplant the second party. That's all they ever do. Correct. Right. The very first party was created by the author of this document. We're That's right, the Republican Democrat the Party. Democrat, or Democrat, the Democratic Republicans, the That's very the first political party in America. And it remains <laughs> there, okay? Yeah, uh, all the others, except the Republican Party, all the others have gone defunct. The Federalists well, went defunct. The Whigs went defunct. <laughs> Free Soil, defunct. And then eventually, of course, then moot, right? Mm -hmm. But defunct. Uh, and of course, in the in the eighteen early eighteen fifties, that that there, you know, the <laughs> Whigs who remained, and then some Free Soilers and others were able to come together to form what remains the second political party in America, namely the the GOP. But anyway, right? It's just, but from the beginning, you know, it's basically been um, two parties, but embodying two separate principles. Okay, one the principle of equality that is the strength of and again this is not a political podcast no. is this politician and lawyer but anyway um they embody that that's the strength of the, the democratic party anybody can show up there's no issue right about you showing up and then the other political party always embodies either an idea or a cause or a policy shift that is fundamental enough literally to go to war over. 
And so Which the other party is always going to be a minority party, even when it successfully wins multiple presidential elections, can hold the majority in Congress. It's still a minority party because you can't just show up. You're sharing at a minimum one or a set of ideas. And that's why you decide to show up. Well, and it's 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 interesting because in a, I've studied parliamentary systems. I, I'm incredibly fascinated by the dysfunction of parliamentary systems. Uh, <laughs> it's just fascinating to me. The miracle that anything gets done. Oh my God! That anything. Let alone successfully for 800 years straight. But yeah. Well, well, they're um, only trying to do they're only trying to do like two things one every once every hundred years. So no, I guess like I mean that's fine. <laughs> that's, Seven hundred fifty-seven years straight. Uh, it's, it's 1265 to, tw- to 2022. But you've got a system where, and this is the difference, this is the fundamental difference between our system based on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the nation-state documents of the United States. We only need two documents <laughs> under 10 pages. You can stack it literally in one hand. And everybody else everywhere else, which is why, by the way, no other country in the world has copied the U.S. Constitution. Interesting. Hmm. No other country in the world. It's interesting. And the reason why is because the concept of a sovereign that goes away, whose power is not based on, as DiRolo said, the nature of birth or genetics... Mm-hmm. But instead is based on, and I would even argue the Democratic Republican Party with Thomas Jefferson was even based on that, but I'll go I'll go a step further away from that for just a second, is based instead on an idea. A human being cannot fully embody an idea. And in a parliamentary system, what winds up happening is because they've split the idea or they split the sovereign, they've split the governmental ruling power, and they split the figurehead away from each other. In a parliamentary system, all every man in that country believes they can be one of those heads. And it's a fundamental cultural thing. So if I have my own pet problem that I want to see solved in a parliamentary system, all I have to do is go get a bunch of signatures and boom, I have a party. I literally get 50 people to sign a piece of paper. I've got a party. And if I win less, if I win in some parliamentary systems, if I win 1% of the vote, I get a seat. That's insane. That's oh, insane. dysfunctional, right? Well, well, well right, which is why I say Certainly I'm, dysfunctional. Fasc- I'm fascinated by the dysfunctions where you can, like you saw this recently in the Canadian elections, they, they, they recalled Trudeau, uh, Boris Johnson just got recalled as of um, this podcast recording, um, and uh, is now fighting to sort of <laughs> pull together, a, pull together, a, I love it how they say the parliamentary systems, a governing coalition. <laughs> <laughs> Love that terminology, um, but and, and, and but they want because they don't want to say out loud. Oh, Macron just faced this in France. Like uh, what they don't want to say is this: you're just you you couldn't hold together the dysfunction enough to get everybody on the same page to get anything done, mm-hmm. because it's every man for himself in a parliamentary system, and devil take the hindmost. And psychologically, what this does is it sets people up with the idea that they can be their own sovereign and their own king and their own place, which is good if you are operating underneath a millennia-long monarchical-based system. Mm-hmm. And the second you break from that, as it says at the beginning, 
I love this piece. I'm going to revisit this. This is the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. Yes, you can hear, can hear my Declaration of Independence wrapping around as it says here. <clears throat> and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Part of suffering is inserting myself into the suffering. That's what you see in parliamentary systems. I will be the person that will fix the suffering. I can do that. Our system fundamentally has no space for that sort of energy. Mm. Um, you, you can make an argument that the legislature does. You can make an argument that maybe the executive uh, should have embodied that power. But again, Washington set the mode for every executive moving forward up until I would assert Lincoln. And then from Lincoln all the way up to Roosevelt. And then from Roosevelt, we get to where we are now. I, I think those were the three big sort of seismic shifts in the executive. And we can argue about presidents later on. But I think we'll get to the Federalist Papers. But I think, I think those are the three big shifts in the, in, the, in the conception of what the executive really could do. If there has to be three, then I agree. Um, and there could be more. I mean, we could, expand the, we could expand the franchise if you would like. But I think those are the big three pillars. Oh, I think there's some really strong arguments to be made there about some continuity of thought in the executive. Mm -hmm. But what the Constitution and fundamentally the Declaration of Independence did because it was based in Magna Carta is this. It grounded everything in the legislature. Mm -hmm. It grounded everything in the legislature. And it said that the judiciary is interesting, but not particularly relevant. Um, judges are interesting, but they can get to be tyrannical. So we're going to leave that over there. The executive... <laughs> As Thomas Jefferson, you know, kind of pushed back on Washington, we don't want a monarch. Go away. Okay. Yep. All right. So um, for many years between Washington and, um, and I would argue probably the tide started turning a little bit with Andrew Jackson, but from Washington all the way up to Lincoln, uh, the executive was very weak. Like there was, a, there was very little the executive could do short of being a representative of, of America. And it was because of Jefferson's ideas that are embedded in this, in this declaration. Um, but the legislature, the legislature was supposed to be where it was at. And that is because fundamentally what the Declaration of Independence is doing is it is building a republic, not a democracy, not a democracy. I want to be very clear on that. And when we look at the back end of the complaints, <laughs> from Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, you will see what I am talking about. Back to the Declaration of Independence. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefit of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. By the way, pause, that's Canada. Yes, it's, Quebec, it's about the Quebec Act. You know. The Quebecois. <laughs> back, yeah. back, back to the Declaration of Independence. 
for taking away for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our government. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, love that word, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas, to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us, and has thus endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, <laughs> and here we go, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, not genders, kids, sexes, and conditions. Pause there for just a second. Before the great ellipsis. Before the great ellipsis. We don't like the fact that our founding fathers held cultural views on race, gender, and class that we now find to be distasteful. We dislike that. Which is why we tend to pause at the we hold these truths to be self-evident part, and then we try to skip all the way over to the end. <laughs> and we shouldn't. Because these guys were 18th century guys. One of the things that leaders have to do is they have to contextualize the world. Uh, uh, we're going to engage in a process. I've already started kind of outlining this. When we look at the Constitution uh, and the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, we're going to engage in something called constitutional hermeneutics. <laughs> we're going to look at the context of the Constitution, and we're going to look at the context of what it was in. But we also have to look at, in both of these founding documents, the context of the Declaration of Independence. Did these guys hold slaves? Yes, sir, Bob. Uh, was some of them did. Some, some of them did. Some, some of them did. Did feminism exist in 1785 or in 1776? Uh, hell no, not in the form that you're thinking of late 20th century but feminism. Proto feminists did, and it was Proto feminists did. Like Abigail Adams. There you go. Like even Mary Wollstonecraft. That's right. 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 But there but were women not... out there saying, uh uh, <laughs> don't treat me like this. That's right. It was I don't deserve it. It was the beginning you know? of things. Um, yeah. Were we about to embark on, uh, how can I put this? I don't want to use the word genocide because I think that, that is a loaded term. I don't believe that. Um, are we, were we poised to have a reckoning with the native cultures who had been here a millennial? Yeah, more than a millennia. Yes, absolutely, for sure, we were. Um, and there always is that when there is a clash of civilizations, such as on this continent, uh, such as it were on every other continent where there was colonialization. Does this mean we should be proud about these things? No, it means we should acknowledge the facts of history, not be hidebound by guilt, and move forward. Anyway. Or just sever the whole thing and move forward learning nothing and thus being vulnerable to making the same mistakes over again well and yeah, this it's is tough a, it's tough well this is a document against tyranny fundamentally yes. how do we define tyranny? You're, you're, you're right and if i can touch on that for a moment yes, yes the framework of this document is whiggish okay and we mentioned whigs before as an american political party but the actual whigs the real whigs the english whigs okay 
not to be confused with a band called the Afghan Wigs. <laughs> I couldn't, I could not say that fun because when is when else does it ever come up? But anyway, they are, they are good. Where, yeah. where else are you going to drop the Afghan Wigs instead of a podcast? Oh no. <laughs> Uh, except the podcast about you know leadership uh, based on the great books, so and and, and or great documents because this of course wasn't a book <coughs> as you pointed out. Excuse me. So the English Wigs, um, that was a reference to the party or connection that had one central idea. They opposed one thing. Okay, absolute arbitrary government. That's what they opposed. The, in, the, the, the raison d'etre of that party was to take, at the time, the English sovereign and make him um, subject to English law. That was the, the function. And then after they, they succeeded in that in the Glorious Revolution of 1689, um, which was the real forerunner of the American Revolution less than 100 years later. Here's something I learned from Woodard, and then I'm going to carry on with my point. That war was actually fought in North America also. I did not know that until I read Woodard's book. There were actually there were actual battles in 1688, 1689, that era, in North America. I didn't know that. Um, I did not know that either. <laughs> um, um, that's interesting. Okay. But I think I have to back it up slightly. So... Um, let's make it 1640 to 1689, because prior to the Glorious uh, Revolution, there was the Stuart Restoration, which occurred in 1660-1661, and prior to that was the Cromwellian Interregnum. And so battles from... <laughs> that great old barrister. <laughs> right, exactly, and, and, and landowner from Northeast England, yes. Uh, or Sorry, East England, not Northeast England. Um, wasn't from that far north. Uh, Yes. So from 1640, let's say, to 1689, there were battles fought in North America that relate to the principles that ultimately the Whigs, the Whigs espoused and ultimately they succeeded. Right. So the very first principle, I would say, um, is uh, the opposition to absolute arbitrary government. The second is parliamentary supremacy. Okay, and so this document is Whiggish, hence the very first right you hear them talking about. Okay, um, afterlife, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which to some people are ideals, but those are, they're certainly abstract. The first concrete right they're talking about is the right to representation in the legislature who alone get to make the laws. And right, so right. that's Whiggish in its framing. Okay, and so absolutely, that's what they're about. Um, and uh, it's certainly not uh, our, our current way of thinking about the framework, our current way of thinking about governance uh, bears almost no reference to that, you know. Uh, and, and there's reasons for that, that some of them are, are judicial and, and legal, unfortunately. And the reason I say unfortunately is because they're mistakes, they're problems in the law and in adjudication that lead to that. And so one of the fundamental ones uh, or I guess I, the way we think about governance, um, I think, has just been so um, jerked out of line. But, you know, where lawyers and people who make laws are actually responsible. Um, in Jefferson's day, if you had a law, a legislature passed it, and that was it. In our day, most of the rules that regulate how Americans do what they do do not originate in legislatures. They're administrative regulations that come from executive bodies mm -hmm. like um, 
the Treasury Department, like uh, the Social Security Administration, mm-hmm. you know. And so because of that, the, the importance of the legislature is very, very hard to really get a finger on. Um, and I think that's a practical way we live it. An impractical way that we live it is how we go to war. Mm-hmm. Because they used to, uh, well, I mean, forget they used to, and it's in Article One of the Constitution. War powers reside yeah. with Congress. Yeah. Congress has to declare war. Well, that's all well and good until you come into an era where the technology enables somebody to attack you and nobody cares about a declaration. Then what do you do? Right. And, you know, Congress passed the War Powers Act, blah, blah, blah. Um, where we are today, though, is I don't think very many, very many, very many Americans challenge the notion of whoever the sitting president is, he or she may go to war or just start bombing somebody. And we're going to find out about it afterwards. Like, I mean, I don't think most Americans would contest that. Here's what's even more disturbing than that, because that that should be disturbing Um, because our Republican small, our framework of government is not set up that way. How about the bombings that go on and there's no notice, there's no discussion, like whatever the heck is happening in Yemen and just stuff we don't hear about. You mean you mean drone strikes on people? Right. I mean, in Star Wars land, you got the Clone Wars and it's just like, who got involved? Don't know, because they weren't, were they people? I don't know, you know? And so they can play around with the metaphors for that. But one of the applications I see is like, well, who, who even knows about the drone wars? I mean, what? Is there one going on right now? Sure. Oh, Where? for sure. Oh, yeah. Like, but they're but they're not wars. You have to realize this is again. This is why people get this is why people get irritated with lawyers because of euphemisms of language. They're not wars. They're police actions. <laughs> yeah. In Jefferson's day, there wasn't even a police force. Hence, <laughs> by the way, why we miss some of the. Well, I mean, there's people in Texas who probably don't, and in Arizona, there's certain people who don't, but miss. The, the, the whole weight and the import of, you know, quartering soldiers yeah, and having yeah. them. Right. There was no police force, but it didn't mean that crime wasn't dealt with. Right. You know, um, and I'm not saying that I'm advocating for returning to that type of system, you know, um, ironically or not. Uh, Sir Robert Peel, mm-hmm. um, who would become British prime minister 30. no. I think about 70 years after when we're talking about, but anyway, was responsible for creating the Metropolitan Police Force in London, you know, the first modern police force, in the, at least in the Western world, um, that actually had method and principle, and it was a professional body. He did a very good job of that. And so, you know, that started. But, you know, even as late as 1914, they didn't use firearms. And it worked somehow. Somehow, somehow, <laughs> back to wow, yeah, the declaration. Let's close here because we're getting to the end of our time together with Dorolo. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Of course, talking about the Declaration of Independence again. There's going to be a lot of Dorolo this month, so go out and get your own self a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Go out and yourself get yourself a copy of uh, of the pamphlet that has 
And usually the Declaration of Independence is packaged with something else. Uh, my copy that I have is packaged with a copy of the Federalist Papers, uh, the Articles of the Confederation, or the Articles of Confederacy, sorry, um, and, uh, and uh, a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, every American should own a copy of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Every American should read it as designed to be read by every American. Mm-hmm. From the end of the Declaration of Independence, and I quote, In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which might define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in our attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity lovely word there. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states and that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all the other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other's our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. They weren't kidding either. Nope. If you want to know more, like I said, about staying on the path, get yourself a copy of the Constitution, get yourself a copy of the Declaration of Independence, read this document, and and, and, uh, uh, embed its words on your mind and heart. Dorolo, with the last 30 seconds we've got together, (laughs) what would you like to leave the people with as we close? Freedom has principles, and this document is one of the best at articulating what many of them are. Leaders have clear vision, have clear writing to back it up, and then have the courage to go out and act. I want to thank DeRolo for coming on the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast today. It's always a pleasure to hear him and to talk with him. And look for more of him this month. Thank you. And look for more of him this month as we talk about the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, and, of course, the big boy, the U.S. Constitution. Till then, I'm out.
listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course, Spotify. And leave a five-star review if you like the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. Look, we need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way that you can help us actually grow this show. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started down the leadership path, uh, our products at, from HSCT Publishing can help you and your team do that. So check out our training webinars, our coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. And check out our video-based subscription service at leadingkeys.com. We've got books that will help you and your team grow. So pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And subscribe to the Little Red podcast we launched earlier this year with the same name as this Little Red book, My Boss Doesn't Care. 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And of course, pick up my most recent book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, written with Bradley Madigan. You're going to want to pick up a copy of that in April 2022. And you can get both of these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place you order books on demand. Finally, we are on YouTube, or I'm on YouTube, or someone around here is on YouTube. So like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing on YouTube and hit the subscribe button to get updates every single time we upload a new video, which we do that at least once a week. And subscribe to the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience podcast Yes, I have three podcasts on YouTube where I talk more casually with a wider range of people all about all matters that matter in the world today. Everything from fatherhood to criminal justice, Christianity to artificial intelligence. We cover the entire plethora of things that are floating around in my mind, and that's why it's called an audio experience. All right, well, that's it for me. Out.